I'm going to begin this morning with a scripture verse, and this is not actually part of my sermon, but recognizing that today is a day that is significant. Um, Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a Bob Dylan song, I know, the great theologian Bob Dylan, uh, from when I was young, and it has these lyrics. It's getting dark, too dark for me to see. I feel like I'm knocking on heaven's door. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Actually, if you actually read the lyrics, I think it says the exact same thing about three or four times after that. What happens when you die? That's a question that we typically answer in an abstract, theoretical sense. We see death as something that is far away, and it's almost an irrelevant question to us. But what if we are knocking on heaven's door today, and we just didn't know it? 21 years ago today, thousands of people woke up with the idea that death was likely something far off in the distance. Yet they were actually knocking on heaven's door that very same day. Obviously, I'm talking about the events that took place on September 11, 2001, where there were individuals who gave of themselves in a terroristic act, but there were many more who gave of themselves in a sacrificial act, choosing to go in and to rescue those who were perishing. I have no idea when you will stand before the Lord, either as a result of the Lord returning or as a result of death coming your way. But knowing the answer to the question, what happens when you die, is so important to you today. My hope is that all of you will have many, many years before the Lord calls you home. But what if that's not the case? If you are not ready to meet the Lord, it is time for us as a people to get ready because no one is promised tomorrow. I mentioned that there were those who willingly gave their lives that day, individuals who ran into those towers to rescue other people. Aren't you glad to know that there is one who willingly gave his life so that all of humanity could be saved? And obviously I'm referring to Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you today to stand alongside those who still grieve. I have friends who lost loved ones on that day, and today is a very difficult day. It's a reminder of what was lost in someone else's foolishness, and there is certainly an element of that. But I also challenge you as a church, you have something to celebrate. God has given you hope, and it's because someone did willingly give their life for you. All right, I want to get into my message now. That's just extra stuff because it's September 11th and I'm supposed to point those things out. I think it's important for us to do that. I read a true story about a man who had gone to a hardware store for supplies that he needed for a minor plumbing repair job. As he was leaving, the owner said, I'll see you in a little while. Why, asked the customer, is there something else that I need? He said, nope, you haven't forgotten anything. 
It's just that every time I see a do-it-yourselfer do a plumbing job, they end up messing things up and require three trips to the hardware store. The guy's response was, well, I plan to be the exception. When he did return an hour later to get a replacement for a part that he had damaged, the owner looked over and held up two fingers and said, see you in a little while. Well, the customer later said that they did not see me in a little while. When the predicted third trip became necessary, I went to a different hardware store. That was in a Reader's Digest article. You know, pride is an interesting weakness. It causes us to do or to not do all kinds of things with our lives. William Barclay noted, pride is the ground in which all other sins grow. And William Barclay got his wisdom from the scriptures on this. Proverbs 11.2 explains that when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. And Proverbs 16.18 tells us, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. James 4.6 further claims, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In our text today, we are going to be introduced to a very proud man named Naaman. He is a successful man. His story is found in 2 Kings chapter 5. He seems to be very successful, very well loved, but he has a problem. Listen to the introduction of Naaman. 2 Kings chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded. Because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. One man described Naaman this way. He said he was the commander of a very powerful army. Men took orders from him. Men feared him. Men showed him respect and honor. He had a position that other men only dreamed of having. He was a very powerful man. He was also very popular. He had a good name. He was well respected and trusted even by his king, which was unheard of in those days. Most military leaders were feared by their kings. So he was powerful, he was popular, and he was also a very accomplished man. He was a man of great valor and had won a great number of battles. Naaman was a man any mother would be proud to call son. Naaman, he is the ultimate success story. He is a leader among men, capable, he's respected, he's well-liked. But he has a problem. Naaman had developed something called leprosy. It's something we don't see in our day today, but it's something that was very common in the Old and New Testaments. He was unclean, even among the pagans. And unless he could be healed, there is a good chance that eventually he would die from this disease. Now, before I get into the contrasting image of this proud man versus a servant girl that's also introduced in this passage, I want to point out that God has a way of humbling people. 
all that power, all that prosperity, all those successes, they probably made him feel pretty good about himself. But no matter what Naaman had accomplished, he was still the subject of a fallen world. And whether he was aware of it or not, he was absolutely not in control of his environment. Rather, God was. Maybe today, there are those in this room that would look and say, I have accomplished much. I have done great things. Look at me. I want you to know you are still under the control of God. You still live in a fallen world, and no matter how good or successful you may be, bad things still happen to all of us. Today, there is no doubt that the Lord still humbles the proud through some of the most painful experiences. It may be a marriage that falls apart, or children who wander away from the Lord. It may be the loss of a job, or some financial collapse, or some type of scary health diagnosis. It won't always be leprosy, as it was with Naaman. But God will use other things to show us that we must still be continuously dependent upon the Lord. So let's get back to Naaman. The Bible scholars tell us that leprosy was often used in Scripture as a symbol of sin. Just like with sin, people couldn't hide the results of their disease, although they may try. Leprosy devastated their lives. It destroyed them from the inside out. And in a manner, it separated them from God and other people. They basically become outcasts. That's what sin can do to us. And that's what leprosy was going to do to Naaman. The idea here is he probably hasn't had leprosy for very long because he's still an individual in good standing with the king. The longer an individual had leprosy, the harder it was to hide the leprosy. And what would happen is eventually you would become an outcast. So you would be sent away so that you couldn't possibly infect other people. And the idea here is that Naaman is not yet to that point. But just as God will end up healing Naaman of his leprosy, God has made a way for all of us to have our sin removed as well. And that is only through the name of Jesus Christ, which is clearly the one who gave his life for us, like I mentioned earlier. Well, as the story progresses, we are introduced to another character. It is a young girl who is very different from Naaman. Listen, beginning in verse 2. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. I always laugh at that last one, the 10 sets of clothing, because we live in a culture where we've got so many clothes, we don't even know what to do with it. We've got to purge our closets at least once a year, sometimes even more frequently. My wife won't even let me buy a shirt unless I'm willing to get rid of another one. This was a big deal for them. He's bringing a lot 
to the table here. We're never given this young girl's name. We're simply told that she is a young girl from Israel who has been taken captive and now she is a slave to Naaman's wife. We talked about all the greatness of Naaman and all of his great accomplishments. And we see in this girl that she is everything that he is not. She is a nobody. In fact, it's unlikely that most people would have even taken notice of her if they walked into the room and she was standing right in front of them. Yet perhaps the greatest difference between her and Naaman is the fact that she knows where to turn in a time of need. Perhaps it's because Naaman has become so self-sufficient that he felt that he no longer needed anybody else. Or perhaps it's just because of chance. She was raised in a Jewish family where she happened to hear about the goodness of God and Naaman was likely raised in Aram. I only bring this up because I think that sometimes we take for granted what we've learned as young people. Some of us have great family heritages where we heard the good news presented by our parents or our grandparents. They were great role models to us of what faith is supposed to look like. For us, we were like the servant girl. Yes, life may get difficult at times, but I know what I stand on because of the foundation that was built when I was young. And I would just say that we need to continually be grateful for that kind of heritage. But there are also those that are like Naaman. We weren't raised in a godly home. It wasn't necessarily a bad home, but God was seemingly not a part of our daily lives. Yet that doesn't mean that we can't also experience God. In fact, to all of us, if we will seek out the Lord regardless of our background, he is available to us. Well, it's likely that by this time, Naaman has tried many routes for healing. I told you he probably hasn't been a leper that long because he's still in good standing. But the moment that the leprosy would have begun to develop, he would have recognized that there was a problem. And he probably sought many different routes for healing. He's likely called on the gods of Aram, but to no avail. He's probably sought out doctors or sorcerers. He's probably even offered sacrifices to all of the many gods that were present in Aram but nothing has worked. I imagine him sitting amidst all of his prosperity with trophies and shields and gold and silver. I even imagine the king, who apparently loved Naaman, feeling a sense of hopelessness. And here we have Naaman, almost with his arms crossed and his head hung low. But in the midst of everyone else's despair, this young nobody servant offers hope. She knows of a place that Naaman can go and find the healing that he so desperately needs. She shares it with her master and immediately the wheels start turning. You almost picture a sense of excitement that suddenly filled the air. Remember how heavy and dark it must have seemed as he sat there with no hope. A spirit of sickness and impending death had permeated the royal palace. Depression and hopelessness were everywhere and suddenly there was hope again. 
it almost reminds me a little bit of the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. When Jesus approaches the tomb, there is a sense of defeat. The women are weeping, and one of them declares that if you had been here, Lord, you could have healed him. He would still be alive. And she was right, and they all knew it. But there's a feeling now of it's too late. And then Jesus commands them to open the tomb, and though they object, declaring that there is already a stench of death, somebody has the sense to do as Jesus commands. And then they hear those words, Lazarus, come forth. In that moment, the spirit of sickness and impending death immediately transformed into a sense of anticipation. Can you imagine the excitement that suddenly filled the air? I'm not talking about before. I'm not talking about after Lazarus rises from the dead. I'm talking about before he rises. Lazarus has been dead for four days. There is no hope. You weren't expecting this to happen, and suddenly there is hope. Well, that's where we find Naaman and those around him. There was no hope. We've tried everything, and nothing seems to work, yet suddenly there might be a way. We know that's the case because even the king is excited. Yeah, absolutely, go. In fact, I'll send you letters to say, basically, you're going with my blessing. There's a sense of hope suddenly. So Naaman, with the blessing of the king, begins his journey to Samaria. He wants to see this prophet who can bring healing to his body. But he has very little to go on. Go back and look at what this young servant girl said. There is a prophet in Samaria. The servant girl didn't even give a name for this prophet. So he goes to the place where he could relate with his audience. He goes to the palace in Samaria. But that's not where he would find his healing. Eventually, Naaman is instructed to come to the home of a prophet named Elisha. There are two prophets that have similar names. You have Elijah, you have Elisha. Both of them were incredibly blessed, and God used them to do great things. This one is the prophet Elisha with the S-H-A at the end of his name. In verses 8 and 9, we read that Elisha sends word to the king, Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Now, I just want to point out that from the very beginning here, this is not the way things typically worked for a man like Naaman. He's an important man. You would think that this prophet would have come to him, but that doesn't happen. In fact, it actually gets worse when he gets to the house of Elisha. Listen, beginning in verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Now, Honestly, what is said to him that day is not a bad thing. In fact, it sounds like a pretty good deal. But I want you to consider who came out to meet with Naaman. Elisha, the prophet, never even walks out to greet him. I thought Naaman was an important man. 
Talk about disrespectful. What could be so important? Are you in the middle of a video game? Are you using the bathroom? Is there something else going on that is more important than Naaman's presence here on this day that you can't even come outside to greet me? Does he not know who I am? Immediately, it becomes clear that Naaman is offended by this encounter. Look at what happens next. You kind of picture him with his arms crossed and pouting as he speaks. It says in verse 11, but Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. How dare he send somebody else to come out and meet me? I mean, if this is truly a prophet of God who has the ability to heal, then why didn't he just come out and do some really cool magic trick? I want you to imagine this for a moment. In his arrogance, Naaman thought he deserved more. In his arrogance, Naaman thought God had to do things the way Naaman expected it to be done. Has that ever been you? Have you ever looked at the needs sitting in front of you and you had this vision of this is what God needs to do? It just makes sense to me. If it makes sense to me, it's going to make sense to God too. There's a sense of arrogance. We put God into a box. This is the way it has to be. I have a friend whose mother is currently dealing with significant muscle deterioration. The doctors have given her no hope. According to them, she will never improve. Christina, my friend, she is the daughter and she and I got to talking one night, and I offered to go and pray over her mom. I did, and there's a part of me that half expected her mom to get up and walk that day. It's what we asked for, therefore that ought to be what God does. I'm still praying for that miracle to take place, because it has not. But I, along with Christina, have come to the conclusion that God is more than able to do what seems impossible for the doctors. But God doesn't always do things the way I expect him to. It may be that God will choose to heal her at a different time. Or it may be that God will choose to heal her in a different way, maybe even completely by taking her home. I don't know what God will do. But I know that God is still the best place for me and you and every other person in this world to turn in the midst of crisis. Some of you in here today have experienced that. And you know that God provides. Sometimes it's his grace that is sufficient. Sometimes it is his power that takes us out of the storm that we're in. But he is faithful regardless of what we experience. In Naaman's case, he is offended by the lack of presence by Elisha. 
but he's also probably slightly blinded by his apparent superiority. The servant's instruction was to go and dip seven times into the Jordan and you will be cleansed. I told you, that sounds like a pretty good deal. Well, that sounds dumb to him. Why would I go and dip in the Jordan? We've got much nicer rivers back home. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, but I've also lived in Colorado. This would be like me visiting from Colorado to Washington, D.C., and being told to go wash in the Potomac. Ew, that's disgusting. I might come out with a new disease. We've got much nicer rivers back home in Colorado. So in a rage, Naaman leaves that day with no intention of going to wash in the Jordan. He probably sees this as a wasted trip. Maybe he's even contemplating how he can get even with this prophet for wasting his time. And suddenly he gets a word of wisdom. Curiously, it's again from a nobody servant. It's almost as if the only wise people in this story are the nobodies. Look in verse 13. Naaman's servant, Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? Let me summarize what this servant is saying. He has to say it in a much more diplomatic and nice way because he's a nobody. What he really says, quit acting like a two-year-old. Grow up. If that prophet had instructed you to sacrifice a hundred head of cattle, or to say a thousand prayers, that would have been doable. It would have made sense because it was a big ask. But because he gives you something simple, yet undesirable, you're going to refuse to do it. The servant doesn't say it, but at this point he's probably thinking that it's Naaman who is wasting our time out here. He wants God to do something for him but he's not willing to do what the Lord has instructed him to do. That actually sounds a bit familiar with our culture today, doesn't it? We want the Lord to do something for us, but we're not willing to do whatever the Lord expects of us. Oh Lord, I, I want prosperity. I want good health. I want blessings. I want friends, but I'm not going to change my life. I'm going to keep living for myself. What a foolish mindset. Now, I love the fact that the servant loved him enough to call him out, though. If he had given you some difficult thing to do, you would have done it. So why wouldn't you do this little thing? I then picture Naaman rolling his eyes and reluctantly doing what he's been told to do. Remember, actually we read in verse 14 that he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. I want you to consider what happens and how much humility was required for Naaman to go and dip in this water. He'll have another act of humility a little bit later. But in this moment, the very act of him going into the water and dipping down seven times was a very humbling act. His expectations were likely very low. And I even wonder if it got harder on him every time he dipped into the water. 
Remember that he was instructed to dip into the water seven times. Can you imagine the first time he comes out of the water and he looks down at his leprosy and it isn't any better. It's still there. See, I told you this wouldn't work. This is dumb. Why are we even here? And I picture the servants reminding him that the instruction was to do this seven times. And each time he goes into the water and he comes back out, the frustration likely continued to build. I can't help but wonder what would have happened had Naaman given up after only five or six times down into the water. I also wonder if there haven't been times that God's people, maybe even some of us, perhaps gave up on God, unaware of how close we were to God doing something great in our lives. We decided to follow God, but we'll only go so far. We grew weary, and we decided to lose heart, as the writer of Hebrews says. Please don't let that be you. In the words of the Apostle Paul, I challenge you to press on to take hold of the prize to which God has called you heavenward. Do not give up. It may be that God's greatest blessing is what waits for you around the next corner. Well, Naaman goes down seven times into the water. And while nothing seems to change on the first six times, on the seventh time, a great miracle takes place. It's almost like the Israelites marching around the walls of Jericho six times. And on the seventh time, God does something incredible. But for Naaman, it wasn't a great military battle. This was something he was familiar with. He could fight. He knew what it was to be a warrior. This wasn't some great military battle that was being won. This was far more important. For him, the seventh time down resulted in life and healing comes back out of the water, and his skin is not just repaired a little bit. It's not just better. The description says that his skin was like that of a young boy. I picture this guy whose skin was scorched by hours and hours out in the hot desert sun, fighting in the elements, having lost all the elasticity in his skin, yet all of a sudden his skin is like that of a newborn child. That's the kind of healing God offers. He doesn't just make us a little bit better. He makes us new. I suggest to you that in that moment, God transforms more than just the skin of Naaman. It was at this very moment that God also transforms the heart of Naaman. He not only is grateful for the miraculous healing that has taken place, but he is suddenly aware of how childishly he has behaved. And to think that he almost refused to even get into the water that day. He was mad. He wanted to go home. Well, forget about it. He doesn't want to come out and do it the way I expect him to do it. I'll just go home. I'll go dip in the waters back in Damascus. Verse 15 tells us, Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. What a humbling moment this 
must have been for Naaman. He went back to the man of God. I remember years ago, I walked into a local Domino's, this is when we were living up in Pennsylvania, to pick up my order. My wife had already ordered on the phone and it was supposed to be ready. The problem was that when I got there, they didn't even have a record of my order. I got frustrated. Are you kidding me? What's the value in us ordering ahead of time if y'all aren't even going to have it here when we get here? The manager was very apologetic, and he offered to make the pizza for me. And I said that was fine. Then I called my wife to tell her that I was going to be a few minutes late because the Domino's had somehow lost our order. My wife's response, I ordered from Papa John's. You know that the hardest part of that conversation was that I now had to go back and apologize because it wasn't their fault in the first place. It was mine. Imagine how humbled Naaman had to be because the reality is he didn't wait until the servant closed the door before he began to express his frustration. More than likely, while the servant is speaking, He's looking at this guy saying, where is your master? Why is he not here? Why did he not send? Why did he send you and not come out himself? What do you mean? You just want me to go dip in that nasty river. He probably expressed his frustration. Do you know how hard it must have been to go back and to now say, you know what? I might've been wrong. Naaman returns. And this time we see that Elisha has time to meet with him. And in this conversation, Naaman makes a declaration. He truly has apparently tried all sorts of other gods who were unable to help him. But now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. He's already tried all these other gods and they didn't work. They couldn't do anything, but there is a God who can do something. He then goes on to declare his allegiance to the Lord, seeking to serve the Lord all the days of his life. Let me suggest that this is the response that all of us ought to have for what God has already done. When we begin to realize all that God has done for us, when we realize how little we deserve, but how great he has been for us. The only logical response is for us to declare our allegiance to him. The apostle Paul said that in view of God's mercy, because of all the great things that he has already done for us, in view of God's mercies, we ought to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto the Lord. I ask you today, what has the Lord done for you? And how will you respond to his incredible generosity? Maybe you question whether God has really been that good to you. First know that God has already done more for you than you could ever imagine when he gave his one and only son to die on a cross to pay for your sins and for my sins. If God never did anything else good for us, he has already done great things. We don't deserve anything else. 
We didn't deserve that. But even beyond that, I wonder if God might be eager to do even more in your life if you don't give up on him. That was Naaman's story. God was eager. He wanted to be able to do something great if Naaman didn't give up. What is it that God desires to do in you today? Maybe there are those in here today whom God is about to open up the floodgates of blessing, and I don't know what those look like. Maybe right now you're going through such a horrible storm and you feel hopeless and you've tried other avenues to try to fix it. I want you to know there is one place that we can turn, and it is to the Lord. His grace is sufficient, but man, I'll tell you, he's our best hope of healing and wholeness. If you would bow your heads with me, Father, as we come before you today, we confess that we are a prideful people. So often we look at the accomplishments that we've had. We think of how good we've got it. We think about all the good things that we've done. And we look at other people and we think, but I'm not as bad as they are. That's for sure. And in our pride and arrogance, it's almost as if we think you're lucky to have us. What a foolish mindset. Father, the fact that you would love us so much that you would send your own son to die for us is overwhelming. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the ways that you have been so good to us. Thank you for the many things that you've allowed us to do so that we basically could accomplish anything. Father, I pray today that you would make us like Naaman, not those who are diseased, but I do pray that you do whatever it takes to bring us to a point of humility where we recognize our standing before you. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to lean into you. And I pray that regardless of what we face tomorrow, that we would know where to turn. Like that servant girl who said, I know a prophet. Lord, I pray that you'd remind us we know a place, we know a God that we can turn. Father, I pray today for forgiveness where we have fallen short, but I also pray that you would fill us, change who we are, that we might become like Naaman, an individual who was so devoted to you that he would never compromise. Make us like that. In Jesus' name, amen. It is such a blessing to have each of you with us today. I am so grateful for the opportunity to be here with you. Uh, I will encourage you, uh, if you believe that God has done a great work in you, uh, I'm gonna, actually, I'm going to go back to where I began the service this morning. On September 11th, 2001, nobody knew that they were going to be knocking on heaven's door that very same day. That being said, if we did know, what would we do different? Think about that for a minute. If you knew that today were going to be your last day, what would you do different? Or maybe it's not you, maybe it's your neighbor, your friend, your family member. If you knew that today was going to be their last day, what would you do different? I think I'd want to talk to some of them. I think I'd want to make sure my heart was right. Maybe I want to make sure their heart is right too. If today were your last day, if you were knocking on heaven's door and you just didn't know it, what would you do different? Thank you for being with us this morning. Go in peace.